Well, I'm excited, uh, excited to be with you tonight. Uh, we began last week, we began a new series called The Truth About Lies, and really a discussion for the next few weeks that we're gathering around, and just beginning this talk about this war on truth, the war on truth that we are in right now, both as a society and in our souls. There is a war on truth. And really to acknowledge that there is a war on truth, we have to acknowledge the teachings of Jesus on our primary enemy, who the scriptures refer to as the devil, and his desire to fill us with lies and to infiltrate every system that we live in with lies. And so we spent the majority of last week's teaching really just trying to come under this conclusion and under the same agreement that, you know, the devil's primary way of getting to us, of attacking us, not the only way, but the primary way that he goes about kind of bringing destruction to our lives, we know that that's his end goal, is to kill, steal, and destroy us. And the primary way that he does that is by giving us lies, by filling our souls with lies and, and injecting us with these uh, deceptive ideas. And so we began this discussion last week. I, um, there's a show right now on Netflix. Anybody on Netflix? Anybody enjoy watching Netflix? Yes. Everybody watches Netflix, right? Who doesn't? There's a show right now, uh, David Letterman, the uh, talk show host, has a, a show on there right now called My, ne My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but he basically does an interview uh, with some famous people. And about a year ago it aired, he interviewed the former president, Barack Obama. And the former president had this incredible quote that I got from it that really just kind of struck me. And he said these words, he said, quote, one of the biggest challenges that we have to our democracy is the degree to which we do not share a common baseline of facts. One of the greatest challenges we face, I believe is very true, one of the greatest challenges we face is the degree to which we do not share a common baseline of facts. In other words, we are not all operating off of the same truth. And that we live in a world where it's really you decide what truth is. So we get terms like fake news and alternative facts. And these statements are really essentially accusatory terms that someone is lying, right? And now these are really a part of the, the lexicon of our daily language now. I mean, you, you, every single one of you knows both of those terms, right? And it's just proof that the day that we're living in is one where there is a war on truth and lies. And um, I don't know if you've done any study of history. In, in the 1960s, there began kind of this movement, and there was, there was a bunch of postmodernism ideas, really from these French philosophers like Foucault and Derrida. And they were injected into U.S. culture and really kind of spurred on this uh, deconstruction of truth in our society to which we are now living in the repercussions of that time and we are experiencing the effects of what deconstructing truth 
looks like all the way from, from the redefinition of freedom to the redefinition of sexuality and gender to honestly just a simple liturgist podcast. You can see how the redefinition of truth is setting into our society and to who we are. But it didn't start in the 1960s. It started actually thousands of years ago, and you can read about it all throughout the scriptures. In fact, in the New Testament, if you read the New Testament, there's a consistent theme throughout the New Testament where there is a warning to watch out for false teachings, right? If you're familiar with scripture, you know that there are consistent, just more than one, multiple warnings to beware of false teachings or or false doctrine. Tragically, what we have taken that as now is now that's like ammo for a Christian to use against another Christian. And in my world, what I see is a preacher using it against another preacher to accuse someone of, of your theology is different than mine or your beliefs are different from mine, rather than actually using that to sound the alarm on the lies that are being injected into us through society and culture and really ultimately through our greatest enemy and how he's doing that. But it's all throughout scripture. And so last week we started reading Jesus' most in-depth teaching about the devil himself. A fun conversation, right? And so I want to just kind of read one or two verses. I believe it's just one verse. We read a lot of it last week, but I just want to kind of recap where we were at last week in John chapter 8. And then we're going to read uh, our primary scripture for the night in Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to follow along, you can do that. Or we'll put them on the screens for you. In John chapter 8, verse 44, this is Jesus talking, and he's talking to the religious leaders of the day. Is it okay if we study the Bible tonight? All right, I love it. He's talking to the religious leaders of the day, and he makes this statement. It's It's a very, like, ouch kind of statement. In verse 44, he says, you belong to your father, the devil. And they're like, I mean, in the conversation, you're either like, no, 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 we we are descendants of Abraham. And he says, no, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Listen, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. This is who he is. And Jesus says, he makes this tie from John chapter 8 all the way back to the beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. So I want to pick up there tonight in Genesis chapter 3 and read a little bit. This is really the account of the beginning. The very beginning. This is where it all began. If, if you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you're not. Uh, God created Adam and Eve, the very first humans. And just a few chapters later, this is the predicament that they find themselves in. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And we get introduced here for the first time to, as it says in Genesis, the serpent or the snake, who we would later find out the writers of the scriptures would reveal to us that that was the devil. So that's who we're tracking with here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it begins, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, that being Eve, he says this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That was something that God told Adam and Eve. You must not eat from one tree. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Just one tree. In verse 4, and this is how the devil responds. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I just want to stop right there and just point out, I think we said it last week, but I want to point out again. Notice that when the enemy came to Eve, he did not come to her and he did not fight her with a weapon. I guess it would have been like a stick or something from the garden. He did not come with a weapon. He came with what? He came with an idea. He came with a lie. And so just to recap what we said last night, the nature of his lies, or last week, the nature of his lies is this. They are deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires, usually our disordered desires for happiness. And then not only that, but they are then normalized in our society, in the world that we live in. His lies are deceitful ideas that play to our already disordered desires, and then they are normalized in our society. Let's keep reading in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also, there's our word, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took something and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It's a rhetorical question, by the way. He knew where he was at. And he answered, wait. Yeah, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, classic blame shifting, I love it. The woman, <laughs> fellas, not good. The woman, two, two blames. The woman you put here with me, <laughs> double blame shifting, on God's, not smart. The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman then said, the serpent, notice this word, deceived me, and I ate. Last couple verses. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animal. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Woman being an archetype for all humanity here. In other words, it doesn't just mean woman. It means all humanity. And between your offspring and hers. 
and he will crush your head, and you will strike his hill. Many scholars believe that's the very first hint at the coming Messiah is that last, last uh, sentence there. But that, that phrase, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring, or and your offspring and hers, that is the tie to John chapter 8 that we read. In John chapter 8, he makes the statement to the religious leaders that they are the seed of the snake. And that's what he's talking about there in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I want to get into this a little bit more. If you, um, if you study philosophy at all, you know that there are really three main questions about life, just in general about life that are an imperative to you understanding life at its fundamental level. Curiously, they are the same three questions that the devil comes to Eve with, and I guarantee you he comes to us with as well. The three questions being this. We're going to put them on the screen. First of all, who is God? Who is God? One of the most fundamental questions of life that you will have to come to an answer of. Who is God? Secondly, who are we as in humanity or on a much more individual basis? Who am I? Who is God? Who am I? And then thirdly, what is the good life? Or what is the life that leads me to the most full, most abundant, most happy? What is that life? Another way to say it is this. There are questions about theology Questions about anthropology or identity and questions about morality or sociology. So how do we live? How do we live? And they are, all three of those are questions that the devil brings up to Eve and he brings up to you and I. And most of his lies, if not all of his lies, are filtered through one of those three categories. I'll show you. In verse 1, 1 through 5, what does he say in Genesis chapter 3? He says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say? What's he doing? He's questioning God. Did God really say that you could not eat of the tree? In other words, he's, he's injecting lies that God is holding out on you that he's holding out on you, that you know better than this God. And it is the beginning of a gross distortion that happens even today of who God is. Did he really say that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit. She goes through her thing. And then he responds with this, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's saying this, you will be like God. So he's saying, you don't have to be how God made you to be. You don't have to be human. God's trying to limit you by making you human. But you can actually rise above that into something else. You do not have to be what God made you to be or who God made you to be. You can be whatever the heck you want to be. Does this sound familiar to today's world at all? You can be whatever you want to be. 
So go ahead and transcend and transgress all limitations that are put on you. Be true to yourself. Live your truth was the lie, was the deceptive idea that he was pushing out. Live your truth. You do not have to be who God has called you to be or who he has made you to be. You just do you boo-boo, I guess. <laughs> just do you. These are not new modern ideas that we're facing today. They are ancient it is the same old lie, deceptive ideas that he has been pushing for thousands of years. And then lastly, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. In other words, ignore all these other trees that have God's full blessing, that have God's full blessing and that yield full life. Instead, go after the one tree that makes you happy. Go after the tree that looks desirable for you. Go after the tree that is pleasing to you. And it will bring you happiness, whatever you want, however you want to go about life. It is still the devil's go-to lie. The exact nature of the lies change throughout time, throughout generations. They change throughout culture, even demographic. But at its core, it is the same lie, the same group of lies that he is releasing into not only society, but into our very souls. And... The sad thing is, and you guys live in the world, you, you know, you don't need me to tell you this, you live in a world that is answering those questions, but they're not answering them with truth. And so you get the question in a, in a secular society that we live in, who is God? And immediately that question gets answered in, in probably many different ways, but one of them is just simply, there is no God, right? You've heard it, and I've heard it. There is no creator, we're all just here on accident as the product of evolutionary theory, and we're just animals by which humanity sits at the top, and it's just a big old accident. There is no God. There is no creator. But listen to me. The problem is, if that's how you answer the first question, the other two questions completely fall apart as well. In fact, the other two questions are answered based on how you answer the first question. I don't know if I'm helping anybody, but maybe this will help you as you have conversations with people outside of the church. But how you answer the first question determines how you answer the second question. Another way to say it is this, and I wanted to write it so you could see, is that our morality is based upon our anthropology or our identity which is also based on our theology. You get it? So it's one big kind of same track that it's on. And if you mess up the first one, theology, the other two fall apart as well. And you get things like common atheism, of there is no God. Or, or I believe to be actually the, the more common is agnosticism, which is essentially just, eh, who cares? 
he, she, it, what, doesn't even matter, I don't believe it, right? And that's what you get. And this leads to a disaster because the other questions are answered based on that. Let me give you an example to maybe help. I need, uh, you got a baseball? I need a baseball. He doesn't just carry around a baseball with him. I, I asked him to bring it. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a baseball. I, I enjoy baseball, so this is kind of my favorite. But this, uh, this baseball was created with a unique function. It's supposed to function in a certain way. It's circular. It kind of rides, rides, that's not the right word. It travels through space in a certain way, different than a football. If I were to bring up a football, you guys know what a football looks like? It travels completely different. A baseball functions in a unique way. In fact, it's got these laces on it. If I put some pressure on one of them a little bit, the baseball is going to do something different. That's how it has a unique function. Because it has a unique function, it leads, to me, leads me to believe that it was created with a design. It has a unique design to it. And because it has a unique design, it leads me to believe that there is a designer of it. So the designer created this with a design to fulfill a certain purpose or to function a certain way. Does that make sense? And so the fact that it functions a certain way proves that there was a design to its function. In other words, if I were to take uh, a knife and cut this ball in half, it would not function the same way because its design has been altered. And so its design leads to its function. And the fact that it was designed means there has to be a designer of it. There has to be a creator of it. Think about it like this. If there is a creator, and I, we're going to put this on the screen as well. I hope it's helpful to put things on the screen. I just want you to be able to track with me. If there is a creator, then there must be design. If there is design, then there is purpose. If there is purpose, then there is morality. In other words, there's right and wrong there's truth and lies, there's good and there's evil. And if there is morality, then there is accountability. And humans run from accountability like the plague. We hate it. And so let me just keep that on the screen. I'll, let me just say this in like a negative way so that maybe this hits you where you're at in the world that you're living in. If there is no creator, if it's all one big just happy accident, filled with just probability and statistics. If there is no creator, then there is no design. It's just evolutionary theory. If there is no design, then there is no intent. It's just survival of the fittest. There is no purpose. If there is no purpose, then there is no morality. In other words, listen, who are you to say what is right and what is wrong? And if there is no morality, then there is no accountability. And this is what we hate. And this is what we hear. You can't judge me. Who are you to say that what I'm doing is wrong? And that begins to seep into who we are and how we live and what we expect. And what we get as a result is a world filled with Twitter and Instagram feeds telling us to do whatever makes us happy and to live our truth. 
and it only leads to complete destruction and disaster. And it all begins with, do you believe that there is a creator and the design? And then it just trickles down. Do you see the danger? Do you see the deceptive ideas that he just leaks into our world? The strategy is old, but it works like a charm, even today. It is how the devil brings destruction and ruin and anarchy and disaster to not only our world, but to our personal lives. He deposits these deceptive ideas, and then they team up with our already disordered desires. And then it becomes normalized in society, and all of a sudden, things have radically shifted from how they were created to be. And when we say these disordered desires, what we're talking about is what the writers of the New Testament would call our flesh. It's this primal, carnal thing in each of us where we actually gravitate, we actually lean to away from what is good and true and how God has made it to be and into things that are evil. I don't know if you know this, but like you're not perfect. There is a, an inclination in you to lean into things that are evil kind of sounds like really uh, maybe drastic or too harsh, but there is flesh in you that leans you toward things that are evil away from what is good. It's in me. It's in each and every one of us. And they are our disordered desires. Let me give you, um, let me give you an example. First, let me just, a deceptive idea. A deceptive idea that may come into your head. The devil may say, God could never love you. You're too dirty. You're too messed up. You've done too much. You're too broken. You are unlovable. And then what you have in you is this already disordered desire. This fact that you actually then look to other people for approval and for love and for validation. And so you combine those two things with also a sinful society that tells you that you'll only find it. You'll only find validation. You'll only find love. You'll only solve those deep wounds in, in you if you look a certain way, if you act a certain way, if you become a certain type of person. And so what happens? You say, well, maybe the deceptive idea was true. Maybe I am too dirty. And so you dismiss God and you believe and you look for all those other things. And you jump from relationship to relationship, from sexual encounter to sexual encounter, from all these different things, looking for something to fill the void in you that was begun by a lie. It's not even true. But it was a deceptive idea that got planted in you. And then you partnered it with your already disordered desires in a society that confirmed it. And it led to the destruction of your life. That is his strategy. Wake up and see it. It's happening all over the place. And so I want to read one last passage of scripture tonight. If you say, well, this is great. How do I, what do I do? <laughs> I believe this is true. I believe this is 
the devil's strategy to come at me, but what do I do to fight it? I want to give you a few thoughts tonight out of Galatians chapter 5. I think we actually read this scripture a good bit here, but I think it's so pivotal to us learning how to live and how to follow Jesus. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul is writing here, and this is what he says. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of, this is our word, the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. I don't know if you feel that in your own life. Have you ever had times where you're like, I want to do good, but I also have this thing in me where I'm drawn to the evil in me, and I don't know how to not do this thing that I know is bad. Like, I actually know this is destroying my life, and I still can't give up. I still can't quit it. Maybe I'm the only one that's fought that before, but... The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. This is contrary to everything that you are told, which is just follow your heart, follow your feelings, whatever your gut's telling you. That's some of the worst advice anybody has ever given you. Don't do it. But if you are led by the spirit, then you are not under the law. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. He's going to list a few here. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit, the one that he is instructing us to live surrendered to. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. You know the verse, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit crucified the flesh. Here's kind of my closing point for the night. To believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to trust him and his vision for life. It's to trust him and his vision for it. It is to realize that you cannot, under your own power, fight the flesh that is in you. You don't have enough discipline you don't have enough willpower. You cannot do it on your own. You will be defeated by it every single time. It is to believe him and to trust him and to understand that you cannot fight it on your own. And it is to surrender daily to him so that my flesh, so that your flesh, the disordered desires that are already in me, my flesh would be crucified, that it would be weakened, that the flesh in me would be weakened, and that the Holy Spirit's strength in me would be strengthened. That is what it means to follow Jesus, to surrender every day as frequently as possible 
to surrender to the Holy Spirit and to ask him to move in me and to give him access to me so that that would be strengthened inside of me and that the flesh would be defeated and weakened inside of me. Otherwise, listen, if your flesh is raging in you, if it is not weakened, then the enemy will implant his deceptive thoughts, his deceitful ideas, and you will have such disordered desires in you because it will not have been weakened. And they will be so strong in you that he will have something to partner with. And I'm telling you, that is a fight that you and I cannot win. His deceptive ideas partner with our disordered desires and then partner with the sinful society that we live in. And I'm telling you, it's a tough battle. So here's a short little phrase that maybe will help you. Your battle is to starve your flesh and to feed the spirit. Every day, my hope and my desire is that I would starve my flesh, that I would not feed into it, but I would instead feed the Holy Spirit living inside of me, that I would surrender to him and allow him to move and allow him to stir up all those traits that we just read about in Galatians chapter 5. I cannot necessarily keep the deceptive ideas from coming at me. I can't do that. But what I can do is I can fight to have my flesh weakened and the spirit of God that is living inside of me strengthened so that I can be ruled by him. And listen, when the spirit of God is strengthened and his activity is happening in me, then the deceptive ideas, I can point them out like that because I have the truth of God in me. And the deceptive ideas, how they latch on to me is much, much different and is much more unlikely to happen when I'm surrendered to the Spirit. I just, I don't have time to read it, but there's a passage in Luke chapter 4. If you're familiar with the journey of Jesus, it's kind of in the beginning of his ministry where he um, is out in the wilderness for 40 days. And he's been fasting, he's just been alone, and he has this encounter with the devil, the same one that we've been reading about, the same one that is out to kill, steal, and destroy your life. He has this encounter with him, and it's actually a, a the, the story of Genesis chapter 3, it's like a recreation of it. And, and the devil comes with the same three questions, the same three questions. And yet Jesus does what no one has ever done before, and he actually wins the battle. But how does he do it? If you study the passage, how does he do it? You see that he had been alone. You see that he had been saturated in prayer. You see that he had been saturated with the truth. I think it's three times he quotes scripture from Deuteronomy. He knew all the truth. He is saturated with it. And he had been fasting. Four practices. Sometimes you'll hear them referred to as the spiritual disciplines. Four practices that actually we are encouraged to live out in our life. To live a life of prayer. To live a life that's, that's, that's saturated in the scriptures of the truth of God's word. To practice what it means to follow Jesus. And that is how 
he won the battle. And it's a model for how you and I are going to win the battle. It's a, it's a model for how our, our, the Spirit of God is strengthened in us and the flesh is weakened. That's a model. But you cannot do that if you will not determine and you will not decide to live a life that is filled with prayer, scriptures, and what it means to follow Jesus. The recipe is right there in Luke chapter 4. Jesus actually models it for us. And so as I'm just dreaming up what could happen in 2019 with all of you and what God may want to do in your life, really I think at the core is just this desire that you would practice what it means to follow Jesus every day, just outside of here. I think you can worship in here as passionately as you want to, and you can be a Christian for 10 years if you want. But if you will not commit to incorporating some of these things that we've talked about of prayer and scripture into your life, I don't think you and I even stand a chance, honestly. And I don't mean to sound harsh, but you think about the devil's end goal is to murder, to steal, kill, and destroy your life. And, and, and really, I don't want to poke fun and, and be harsh, but do you think that reading one scripture on your way to school is going to like, equip you and fill you up with what it takes to fight that war? I mean, if that's, what, if that's all you, you know how to do, then do it. Plus, anything is better than nothing. But I just want to encourage us, it's going to take a lot more to fight this. It's going to take daily surrender on your part. It's going to take daily seeking the Lord and asking him, God, I, I need you to fill me up. I need you to weaken my flesh and the disordered desires in me that for some reason long to actually be drawn to these things that I know I don't even want to do. It's going to take that in your life on a regular basis because I'm telling you, your flesh is strong and it will take you out if you're not committed to that war. Dylan, you can come up. We're going to worship. I, I want to Can we be family for a little bit? You know, I just have to be honest with you. I, I'm, I've realized that my flesh is, is really strong in me, and it leans me away from what I want to do, what I know is right. And leans me toward things that I, sometimes I go, why? I don't know if, if you have the same experience, but sometimes I just go, why did I do that? Like, God, I'm sorry. I don't even know where that came from. And I just get reminded, I feel like on a daily basis of how weak I am and how much I need the Holy Spirit and I need his strength in me. It was um, uh, last week, I guess about a week ago, I, I get Fridays off. I work Sunday through Thursday, so I get Fridays off. And uh, my wife works on Fridays, so that's the, my day with my son. And so we, um, we just, you know, do what guys do, right? He's a two-year-old, me and him, just hanging out. And, um, and so we're always wrestling and, um, you know, just father-son time, right? And so I'm constantly, you know, pushing him on the couch, hitting him with pillows, and he's fighting back, his version of pillow fighting. And, and uh, we have a good time. 
The other day I w- we were playing and uh, I was standing up next to the couch. He was standing on the couch and so we're not quite eye to eye. He's maybe looking at my chest and I don't know, you know, what happened to him. He's kind of in this weird age of we're learning how to discipline him and all these things. But for some reason he just snapped and he said, no, dad, dad. And he swung at me, popped me right in the face. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, I didn't get hit by Conor McGregor or anybody, but it was a good pop, you know. And just so you know, we believe in discipline, and we're practicing that and, and you know, putting them in timeout and, and redirecting and, and um, you know, sometimes even a spanking. Um, but, you know, in that moment, I, I don't know what happened. I, um, he swung at me and said, no, dad, dad. And I just said, what? and I said, do not hit me. And I put my hand on his chest and I pushed him. Pushed him just up against the couch and to the pillows. That's something that we, we do. I mean, that's not uncommon, but I did it with a little bit of anger, honestly. And, uh, you know, what I, <laughs> I'll never forget it, how he looked at me and, his little lips started to quiver, you know, and, and big tears swelled up in his eyes, and he just dropped his head and just began to weep. And it was like in that moment, I just was like, oh my God, like what just happened? Why, why, did, I, why did I respond like that? And so I just sat down, put him in my arms, and I just hugged him and said, I'm so sorry, but I'm so sorry. I don't know why. I don't know why I did that, man. I'm so sorry. And I was just reminded in that moment of how, like, I don't, I don't know where that came from. I don't, I've never been abused in my life. I don't come from that background. That's not, not how we want to parent. We don't practice that kind of parenting. We don't want to, you know, respond to his anger with anger ourselves. We know that's not the case. I don't know what happened. But for some reason, that's what I did. And I know maybe you're listening, you're like, that ain't nothing. He deserved that. Or, or I, don't, I don't, maybe you're like, that ain't nothing compared to what my dad did. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is this, is that in that moment, I have no idea where that came from. And my wife got home that day and I told her what happened. I said, babe, I don't, I don't, I don't know what happened. And we talked through it and. And even the next morning as I was just kind of processing and saying, Lord, where did that come from? And thinking through it. And it's like he just gently reminded me of other instances in my life where, where my flesh has raged inside of me. And just to remind me of Austin, like you don't have this figured out. And you can't do this on your own. And it's going to take a constant surrender to me. Otherwise, your flesh will take over and you will end up doing things that you don't want to do. I was reminded of when I was um, a freshman in college and, and sorry, I'm just going to get personal with you. When I was a freshman in college, I um, was dating a girl and uh, we were kind of hitting a rough patch. I guess it really wasn't a healthy relationship, so that's why it was a rough patch. But um, another guy entered the picture and there was just a bunch of drama and found out that this guy said something and, and it just, I'm a pretty like cool, calm and collective guy. And I'm telling you, I don't know what came over me, 
but I filled with so much rage and anger. It was a feeling that I've never had before toward this guy. Like I could not control it. And I remember walking out to my garage and grabbing my baseball bat and putting it in the passenger side of my Jeep and driving to go meet that guy. And I had no clue what was gonna happen, but I had every intent of doing whatever I felt like I needed to do. And I remember calling my friend and just saying, bro, I'm about to go roll up to this dude and there's no telling what's gonna happen. Him just saying, Austin, don't do that. You're gonna regret that. You're gonna regret that. And fortunately, it didn't come to that and, and some things got in the way, but I'm telling you, I don't know what happened. Something in me just, just got out of control. I was reminded of when I was in seventh grade, the first time that I was exposed to pornography. I could take you back to the exact house I was at. I could tell you the exact setup of the living room I was in, the, where the furniture was, where the computer was, my friend that introduced me to it. I could, I could replay a lot of details. And I remember that night, as I looked at that for the first time, I believe that I opened my innermost being to something and I let my flesh experience something that it was not meant to experience. And for the next, honestly, 10 years, I don't think I, I would get even close, even close to having a handle on that. And for the next 10 years, I would experience the repercussions of lust and things like that in my life. And I opened the door that night when my flesh was weak, so weak. And I tell you all that just to say, man, I'm reminded of how weak I am. And I'm reminded of this fight that I cannot win on my own. And I am desperate. I am so desperate for the Holy Spirit to strengthen me and to fill me with his presence so that the very flesh in me would be weakened and so that I would not gratify the desires of my flesh, but I would walk according to the spirit, that I would be led by the spirit and that my life would be ruled by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and not the opposite. And so I just felt you know, kind of an urge tonight to just maybe ask you if, if, if you have the same desire, if you have the same longing to see your life reflect the same thing. Or maybe tonight you're just very much aware of the lies that you've been believing, the deceptive ideas that have been coming in at you and you're believing them. And maybe you're even allowing it to partner with your disordered desires, your flesh. Maybe tonight you just want to go, my flesh is taking me out, it's destroying me. And I need it to be weakened, I need it to be destroyed, because I want to live a life that's fully led by the Holy Spirit. Because that is the full life, that is the abundant life, that is the good life. And so I want to pray for you, if you just close your eyes and bow your heads and praying that 
even now that you would become aware of these things that we've discussed, that you'd become aware of the flesh that's raging inside of you. But oh, how God has called you to so much more, to a life led by his spirit, where you are not ruled by your flesh and its desires, but you are ruled by him. So here's, here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I just feel like, you know, some people in here need to do business with God before I pray. And so I want to give you an opportunity, just with every head bowed, every eye closed, just give you an opportunity to allow God to search your heart. Maybe a time for you to confess. Maybe a time for you to repent. To say, God, I've, I've allowed myself to be ruled by my flesh. And honestly, it's been good, and I've enjoyed it, and that's why I keep doing it. But it's not the life that I want, and I want to surrender to you. I think tonight is a night for handing over the lies that you've believed, for repenting where you have given it ownership in your life, and surrendering so that you can begin to see the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of the flesh. And so the band's going to lead us in a song that I've asked them to play, and, and I just want to give you a few minutes to respond however you need to. If you need to kneel, if you want to stand in the back, go sit in the corner somewhere, if you want to just stand up where you're at, whatever you need to do, I just want to give you a minute, and then we'll come up and close the service. I may be weak. 
asking you to surrender what is it that the Lord is asking you to repent of go ahead and name it don't be ashamed name it for what it is God's not afraid of your shortcomings God's not afraid of your propensities he's not afraid of your lack he's not afraid I think so many times we get so ashamed of the things that we don't even want to speak it Yet that's the very thing he's waiting for you is to speak it and say, God, I need your help. I need you in this. Lord, I need you. So what is it? make sure we're clear on one thing and that is the scriptures say that the Lord is slow to anger he is rich in love he's abounding in mercy he is gracious he's not up there ashamed of you I promise you that you may be ashamed of what you've done you may be ashamed of what you're fighting I promise you he's not ashamed of you in fact, he loves you so much, so much so that he would say, I'm willing to get in this fight with you. In fact, I'm willing to send you my Holy Spirit. I'm willing to, to fight these battles for you if you will just surrender to me. I'm willing to do it. That's how much he loves you. He's not a far off, distant God looking down on you, going, I can't believe you, that you still struggle with that. I can't believe that that's your thing. I can't believe that you allow that to happen. I can't believe that you did that. No, he's waiting on you. And he is gracious. He's slow to anger. He is rich in love. So right now, surrender to him. Repent. Say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want this anymore. I, I, need, I need you. I need you to strengthen me. I need your spirit to rise up in me and defeat this flesh inside of me. Come on, let's sing it one last time. My spirit may be weak, but oh God, you are strong in me. I may be weak, but your spirit is strong in me. My flesh may fail, my God, you never will. I may be weak, but your spirit is strong in me. My flesh may fail. My God, you never will give me faith to trust what you say. That your good, your love is great. I'm broken inside.
Father, I thank you that you are a loving Father. Lord, so much so that you would lead us in this, that you would, that you would be so tender. Lord, these are, these are delicate issues in our life. These are things, God, and you're not angry at us because we cannot figure them out, but yet you are so kind and gracious and loving and tender with the most delicate places of our soul and that you would lead us through this. And so Father, I pray that you would speak softly, but yet so clear. Softly, but yet so clear. And God, that you would lead us out of the things that are destroying our lives out of the destruction, out of the pits, and Lord, into a life that is led and ruled by you and surrendered to you. So Father, I pray practically for tomorrow, God, that each person in this room would wake up with a new awareness of your spirit in them, that they would surrender to it, and God, that they would ask you to be so at work and active in their life that the things of the flesh would die off. And Lord, the desires that they are currently fighting would be weakened and that they would not fight them the same way. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.